Speaking with me today is Erin Clark, Michigan-born but now living in the UK. She is the rector of St. Matthew's Church in Bethnal Green. Erin first came to my attention when she was mentioned in the FT for the work she was doing in tackling food poverty during the pandemic. Thank you so much for joining me today, Erin, on this lovely sunny day. You have a wonderfully rich life, but I'd really like to start at the beginning and hear a bit about your background, when you moved to the UK and why that happened, and when you became rector of St. Matthew's. Well, it's it's really lovely to be here um, on a lo- lovely day, as you say. Um, yeah, I have been in the UK. I usually date it from about 2008. So what's that, 13 years now? Um, I visited once or twice before that, but that's kind of when I, I thought of myself as moving here. Um, and I moved here for an internship, which became a job, which became another job, which became suddenly discerning whether or not I felt called to priesthood in the Church of England. Um, So it's been one of those journeys where I I never had it all planned out. I, uh, as my accent, I'm sure tells you, (laughs) grew up in the US, um, in Michigan, which is kind of middle Northwest next to Canada. And uh, that was great. I, I really enjoyed that, but definitely didn't have an idea of myself growing up to become a pastor or a priest. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, that was that came much later in life, although looking back, you can sort of see how the constellation was developing all the way along. Was there a turning point or was it a gradual um, realisation? Um, I think a couple of things I needed to, to work through. I grew up in a church which didn't have a sort of ban on women in ministry, but it just wasn't commonly seen. So I think I needed to see some role models of, of women up the front doing the thing yeah. um, and get used to imagining myself in that role. Um, I also needed to find a, a stripe of Christianity where I really felt I fully fit. Um, so growing up in the Midwest as a bit of a feisty baby queer, uh, you know, kind of love and justice Christian, um, didn't necessarily fit in with the sort of more conservative evangelical framework that I was raised with. So I I needed to run away from Christianity for a little while to figure out, yeah, what was really me about that faith um, and to be drawn back into it and to be drawn back into a way of occupying ministry that was really fully me. Um, and that just weirdly happened to be the Church of England. <laughs> yeah. oh, fascinating. And why did you choose the East End of London um, to practice your faith and serve the community? Well, honestly, it doesn't feel like I necessarily chose it. Um, as I said, when I when I moved here in 2008, that was um, specifically to do a bit of work in the East End. And I had previously lived very briefly a um, couple of months just as a student in Highbury, um, which was lovely. And I like, I liked Highbury. I still like Highbury, but I didn't feel like I ever really connected to it. And suddenly being dropped in kind of Whitechapel, (laughs) Spitalfields area. um, I don't know, something in me just was really drawn to it, really loved it, loved the diversity, loved the the grittiness um, and spent a few years living and working there, um, doing some work uh, with and alongside churches, but other work as well. And never expected to come back actually, because um, in the Church of England, you rarely come back to the place where you started when you're ordained. Often it's moving to a completely different part of the country um, or at least part of the city. So it was a complete fluke, something I, I could could not, again, have planned. 
to wind up literally the next parish over um, from where I left after doing my vicar training in Cambridge. So to know just feels like I've been drawn back um, for some reason. And it's meant that I have much more continuity in my relationships and my networks. Um, and much of that fruit, which was only being planted um, when I was here before is now beginning to, to develop in terms of what I can do with folks in the community I've now known for more than a decade, which is great. Wow. And I recently saw a photograph um, in the press of food parcels all gathered together in your church, mm. ready to be sent out to those in the community. Could you tell me a little bit more about this and how it came about um, and yeah, how the process has been for you in getting all these people together in order to yeah make this change and help those around you? Hmm. Yeah, that was the piece in the FT, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the food bank came about um, starting a couple of years ago now. Uh, the Beth, or the, sorry, the Bow Food Bank, which has been running for I think seven years now, started out of a church, a uh, community group, but based at a church in Bow, slightly further east from where I am. And they were finding that their numbers were going up quite a lot. And this was, yeah, about 2019. They put a call out in a bunch of different kind of local faith group networks saying, we're seeing our numbers go up and we want to be able to support more people. So would anybody like to partner with us in starting a kind of daughter partner food bank under the umbrella of Bow Food Bank? And I was at St. Matthew's at that point and looking around our building going, oh, well, we've got these these couple of rooms. We don't do much other than store old paint <laughs> with. Um, maybe that could be a spot uh, for a food bank. You know, I was thinking something really small, um, really relationally based. And so I, you know, with the community here, pitched this idea of us starting to run a food bank and the church council was up for it. So I went back to them and said, yeah, 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 let's start talking about this. So that took about six months. And at the beginning of 2020, January, we launched. And then, yeah, six weeks, two months later, pandemic happened. <laughs> yeah, oh gosh. <laughs> so something which had been seeing, you know, 15 or 20 people every two weeks, every fortnight, uh, went to seeing 50, 100, 150, 200. Um, and I mean, quite frankly, almost immediately outgrew the space that I had originally looked upon with hope. <laughs> um, but it's—I mean, as a project, the food bank has meant so many different things to so many people. I know that it's—it's it's been a lifeline for people who actually need food, kind of emergency food support, which is what it was always designed to do. Uh, it provided a, a reason to get out of the house for a lot of our volunteers. So we went after the first lockdown or during the first lockdown from being all collection to all delivery and back and forth a bit during the year. So it really meant there was a kind of community of volunteers being built up as well as a community of clients being built up. And uh, yeah, I mean, in a year where so many churches were limited in what we could do in terms of in-person worship and prayer, suddenly it became this space where, you know, the community was was brought in in a really different um, way. Um, and that was illustrated really beautifully in those photographs, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, a couple of weeks after the photographs were taken, actually, the food bank moved to a larger premises because, as I said, it almost immediately outgrew what we have. I could see it was massive. I mean, the volume of parcels was tremendous. Yeah. Filled the room massively. Yeah. 
gosh. Yeah. So it was, I mean, it's, it's both kind of heartbreaking and I'm really proud of what it is for the food bank. Cause I think, gosh, just a few of us saying a few yeses and opening the doors and making the space available and making use of the, of the mutual aid networks that were, um, you know, growing up at the beginning of the pandemic meant that this huge, huge, you know, kind of ministry really in the community could, could take shape. Um, and at the same time I look at it and I go, Oh my gosh, the, the problem of, of hunger is just, that's, that's just the t- tip of the iceberg really. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's a very, so lots of feelings around that, I guess. I can imagine. But I read um, that you approached the London assembly for funds to tackle uh, food poverty last November. Could you tell me what happened, what the outcome of that was? Um, so, I mean, fundraising for food is really, really tricky because uh, quite rightly, funders don't want to, um, it's quite difficult to measure how that money is being spent. Even if you give them all your receipts, they think, well, how many people is this going to feed? What are your parcels? Um, and also there's a big concern around creating dependency on agencies which do food distribution. So going to anybody for food, or for money to buy food yeah. is really, really tricky. Not many funders, whether those are trusts or the London Assembly, <laughs> want to want to touch that with a barge pole, actually. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can get money for a fridge or a van to deliver or any number of things, but just getting money for food is often seen as a bit of a, mm, we don't oh, really have no food. idea. Mm. So, um, so fundraising is always really, really difficult for a food bank and the, the Bow Food Bank umbrella, which includes Bethlehem Green Food Bank, relies really, really heavily on on community donations, on, you know, the going down the coffee shop and dropping off six cases of Weetabix or something like that. Um, as much as we will get occasional government grants. So I think we've got two different emergency COVID related food grants. Um, but it's all really um, piece by piece. I think people don't really recognize what a difference they're making when they're just bringing a few well in date tins around. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I can see how passionate you are about wanting to make a change and, and help those in the in the broader community. Do you feel like it is the responsibility of the church to almost pick up the slack where political leaders and those in authority are somewhat failing, you could say. Uh, do you feel like, yeah, it is the responsibility of the church to help in these cases? I'd. It's a complicated question because I, even though you know the Church of England in England is the established church, I think you know it's not like we are an arm of the government. We're not the charity arm of the government, meant to do all the things the government just can't be bothered to do or do well. Yeah. You know, I think it can be easy um, when you run a church to go, okay, well, you know, the government's not doing this or the third sector's not doing this. So we've, you know, we've, we've got to pick up the slack, as you say. Whereas I think that is a really reactive way of, of churches looking at their, their kind of ministry in the community. It's a really, it doesn't allow for churches to be, you know, the kind of fullness of what they are if you're always just kind of doing what other people aren't doing, kind of slotting into mm-hmm. the gaps left mm-hmm. by that. Um, now, I mean, so many churches around the city and the country and the world um, are are picking up loads of slack where where people are not being supported. But rather than think of that as kind of, I don't know, a package of support that a state should give um, and, you know, that the church just happens to be part of that. Um, 
I would say that I would want churches to have a lot more freedom, not to just think of themselves as part of a package of support, but actually to look at the individuals they're working with and to think about them as as whole mm. whole people um, that don't just need support, but they need to be you know connected into their community. Um, they you know someone who comes to uh, to Bethlehem Green Food Bank needing food is probably not just hungry. They're probably you know, facing issues around isolation. They might be facing issues around housing. They might be facing issues around mental health. You know, all of these things are tied together. And, um, you know, just by ticking that, okay, they've got enough food for the next couple of days doesn't doesn't sort their problems out. Um, and I think churches and lots of different faith groups are, are much better at seeing the whole person rather than just a sort of bundle O problems that need a solution. We see people who are trying to live their lives. Absolutely. You mentioned, yeah, that your church is in Bethnal Green, um, which you could say is a difficult area with many suffering hardship. You mentioned isolation and a couple of um, other issues, but what other primary issues are, are there in your community other than poverty, which you think that your church is able to confront and support? Mm, yeah. <laughs> How long have we got? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I did, I mentioned, I mentioned isolation because I think it is a really huge one and one in which the pandemic has, isol- has um, not isolated, but, um, highlighted has, has really highlighted how isolated many people are, how, tenuous our supportive relationships or supportive networks um, around especially in urban areas uh, can be when um, there's so much transience. Um, Bethlehem Green it's funny because um, you know over the past 10 or 20 years I've only been here for you know five ish five or six although I've known the area for longer I've only been here um but you know p- people who've been here all their lives will tell me oh gosh the place has just changed so much it's so different um and you know I think that is a little bit of the development around shortage um has made the place feel quite different um we've got and we've got quite a lot of social housing in the parish so I think where I am the kind of north end of Brick Lane over to Bethnal Green Tube still feels like it's got kind of one foot in the old East End (laughs) and one foot in Shoreditch. Um, So I think wealth inequality because of that is a a huge issue, um, which, you know, one could tackle from lots of different angles. Um, Housing will always be a huge issue, housing and overcrowding. Um, That that has a number of different knock-on effects in the community. Um, At the moment, the the what's suffering are schools around here so like our church school is closing this year because so few families compared to when it was founded can afford to live around here so there's just not enough kids and we're not the only school um in that um kind of either closing or being combined kind of lot so housing really has a knock-on effect on on community life um and yeah i think there's a lot of uh similar with hunger, but a a lot of maybe slightly more hidden stuff around mental health stroke addictions, um, which, you know, that affects every echelon of society in different ways. Um, But it's something which I'm very, very aware of. Um, Yeah. Gosh, yeah. Thank you for picking out. I know that, yeah, the list is probably quite long, but there are such important issues uh, that you mentioned there. And how important is it for you that 
the church reaches out to those in the secular community? Because obviously I'm assuming that the work that you do um, in supporting the wider community doesn't just target those who are religious themselves. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, any church which is only just kind of in its holy huddle, you know, kind of doing its God stuff or, you know, and, and looking after the few people who happen to be part of it. I mean, I think that that's church doing it wrong, really. Um, yeah. But I, I think few churches operate that way, to be honest. Um, I think many churches and religious communities in general, um, you know, the, the people who make up those communities aren't just, you know, it's not like they're, they're in church all week long and they never meet anybody who's not a churchgoer and not a person of faith. You know, they, someone comes here on a Sunday morning and then six and a half days a week, you might say they are in secular spaces. Um, so I think I, I feel my, one of my roles, I guess, um, as a priest is, is to make sure that those folks who do happen to be part of the worshiping community here, um, you know, are, are shining their light in the other six and a half days mm-hmm. of the week that they are out in, um, in other parts of the world, you know, doing that love and serve your neighbors in the name of Christ stuff. Absolutely. When they're not yeah. here. Um, a mentor of mine used to say that, you know, kind of Sunday morning when you go to church, that's like the dress rehearsal for the rest of reality. You know, you're being formed there. Um, you're being nourished there. You're being, um, you know, kind of, <laughs> um, you're learning, you're being challenged. And, but, but, but the rest of life is, is what it is about. Um, so that, um, yeah, that, that's really important to me. Um, the other part of my role, which I think is important is for, um, so Matthew's my church to be working in partnership with lots of, you know, um, either other faith organizations or, um, you know, kind of community or secular organizations. Um, it's, you know, communities are so much stronger when you've got those uh, partnerships going on and people of difference are able to be brought together. I mean, you're talking about social problems. The first thing that stopped, that popped to my mind is difficulty of connecting people across lines of difference, whether that be faith, or culture or income or whatever. Um, and I think that churches really, you know, should and can have a powerful role to play in connecting people across those lines um, of difference, as challenging as that can be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are some of the methods that you think would enable different people from walks of life to make cross those bridges and try to connect? How do you how do you create that connection, do you think? Um I think that uh, projects around uh, mercy, justice, and the arts, I guess. So if you look at Food Bank as a kind of mercy project, you know, people are hungry, they need to be fed. Let's bring together people around that thing and get some people fed. Justice, you know, is about challenging injustice where it is obvious and working together, whether you're working in a kind of formal community organizing setting or whether you're just bringing people together for a kind of smaller, more informal campaign. Um, and then, yeah, I think the arts, um, again, arts can overlap with those, those two I just mentioned, but I think um, celebrating, celebrating people's creativity, whatever that looks like and giving a space for people to enrich each other's lives through creative expression is huge. It's just giving excuses for people who aren't like each other to do a thing together and I think whether that's a mercy thing or a justice thing or an art thing, you know, that that gets at something very essential about what it means to be human um, and not to, to sort of erase differences, but to almost kind of bring them 
bring them out in a in a kind of creative way by doing a thing together yeah what do you think is one of the main problems or maybe what's the biggest issue do you think that's facing the church right now like as a whole (laughs) oh biggest issue well i mean in in the news in the in the past week or fortnight there's been a lot about institutional racism in the church of england um so maybe that's the most obvious one at the moment um i mean i think people of of all colors need to uh take a look at the the boundaries that we erect around our our worshiping spaces um within the church um but i think yeah i think the church of england certainly has a, a lot of reckoning to do with the explicit but more importantly implicit um kind of racism uh in its structures and in its day-to-day life and that's just that's a really really tricky thing to to do um, because no, you know, at least in the Church of England, no church kind of looks the same. You know, it's not like every church out there is mega white and middle class. <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly not. Um, but yeah, I think that's a big issue. I mean, I think um, sexuality continues to be a big one as well. Um, and we haven't, we haven't really figured out a good way ahead for that at the moment either. Those are the, the two biggest ones at the moment. Well, thanks, Sarah. And that's, yeah, that's really interesting to hear your insights on that. I'd like to ask you some general questions, which I think will give people even more of an insight um, into you as a person. Um, I'd like to know, apart from religion, what makes you happy or enriches your life in some way? Mm. What makes me happy? Um, I am, uh, I'm a lover of unpredicted uh kind of delightful things so I think probably one of my happiest days this year so far was uh, an unexpected day of pseudo ice skating on Walthamstow marshes Uh, the marshes had frozen over it was like those really cold days in February and I went for a walk um, and all of a sudden I was like ice skating not I, I say ice skating I had my Doc Martens on and I was like skimming around the marshes but um, yeah, I think surprises really, really, you know, help top up my happiness levels. Um, what else kind of brings me meaning, gives me joy in my life? Um, I, I've, you know, I've got some really, really lovely deep friendships. Um, I've got an amazing husband called Max. Um, I'm, a, I'm getting into the whole like cottage core, grow your own vegetables thing, although I'm not very good at it. <laughs> a creative writer as well so I had a book out earlier this year which was really a lot of hard work (laughs) but really great and I've got a few other kind of creative fiction and non-fiction projects on the go so that is a little bit of what I'm up to when I'm not doing parish things yeah you've got a lot going on (laughs) I'd like to know also do you have someone who inspires your faith oh yeah I do a lot of people um can I say community rather than, than people or I I've always been really inspired by um, they weren't like, they weren't actually nuns, but they were sort of pseudo nuns um, in, uh, <laughs> in the, in sort of Belgium, uh, Germany area. Um, we're talking, you know, several, several hundred years ago, an order, a group of people called the Begwines, um, women um, who, you know, not all of them were like, professed lifelong nuns like a lot of them would come and stay for a little while but it was a sort of this intentional community of yes prayer 
um, but also of supporting each other through different um, phases of life, through different, you know, we're talking about a time when women's life choices were much more limited than they are now. Um, uh, doing amazing things, teaching, farming, brewing beer, you know. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I like, I've, I've always been really inspired by um, the Begwine communities and some of the, the writing that came out of those communities, both kind of spiritual and theological writing, but also just kind of interesting practical writing on what it meant to be a person at that time. I like how they bring together this kind of vocation to pray and vocation to be with one another and vocation to kind of change the world in a time where options were pretty limited. So they've always been inspiring. Got a lot of people, but they were the <laughs> That's such an interesting answer. Thank you, Erin. Oh, I'm going to do some research. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested. I want to know more. Beer brewing. Fascinating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and finally, what's your favorite piece of music which reflects your faith and why? I sort of have an allergic reaction to a lot of church music. <laughs> do you? Oh, yeah, wow. I think because, you know, I've been a Christian for a few decades now and I've been in lots of different ch churches with different musical traditions. Um, and every, you know, and I think it's not just churches. I think it's um, lots of faith groups that have music woven into them. Um, you can start thinking that your style is the only style. Um, and so I have this sort of allergy to church music where, you know, where people get to thinking like, this is the one way to worship God properly. So when I was thinking about, oh gosh, a bit of music, which like reflects my faith, it would have to be a bit of music, which reflects the kind of, I don't know, the kind of questioning nature of my faith. Um, and the song that came to mind is not a Christian song, not a song by a Christian, um, but it's a song called Jesus, Are You Real? by a guy called Mason Jennings. Um, and again, like he's not a guy who would class himself as a Christian, but somebody who's really fascinated by, by the person of Jesus and what he meant for the people around him, what he's meant for people throughout history. But this question of what does it mean for, for Jesus to be real to a person, to a community, to the world? Um, and the song kind of leaves it quite open. Um, but yeah, that, that question of Jesus, are you real? I suppose has been one I've returned to at many different points during my faith and the implications of what the answer could be. So yeah, <laughs> that song maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. The questioning nature of your faith, I guess. Yeah, because you had some time away, um, and then you came back to your Christianity. So that's really interesting. I'm going to give that a listen to <laughs> you've given me lots of homework. So I appreciate it <laughs> massively. Oh, what wonderful answers. Thank you so much, Erin. I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. Lots to think about. Um, fascinating life. And I hope to catch up with you at some point in the future. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah, it's been really lovely to have a chat. 